0: Good morning to you, and happy Mother's Day to you as well. In 1966, the pinnacle of spaghetti westerns occurred when Clint Eastwood, Lee Van Cleef, and Eli Wallach teamed up as hired guns loyal to none, searching for a stolen cache of Confederate gold. And it ended in an epic three-way duel which had never been seen in cinema before. That movie was the good, the bad. And, the ugly. and today, as we end our time in Ezra, it is a fitting title to our text, because a book that begins with the faithful, ends with a list of the unfaithful. A book which begins with hope, ends with tears. And that's not how we write books, is it? In our stories, the good guys wear white and ride off into the sunset. But the Bible is not fiction. The Bible tells the truth for the truth will set us free. And the hard truth is, sometimes our poor choices leave us with only ugly options. And so if you would turn with me to Ezra 9, which is on page 500. Page 500 of the Blue Pew Bible in front of you. Ezra 9. As we turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word in prayer. Father, we invite You this morning to speak to us through the Scriptures. That as we look at a text that is often neglected, perhaps the reason why most preachers leave the book of Ezra unpreached, not wanting to deal with these last two chapters. Lord, You've written it because it's true. You've written it because it is helpful and useful for teaching, reproof, and correction that the man and woman of God would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Indeed, today's text is sharper than a two-edged sword and it will divide joint and marrow thought and intention. We pray, Lord, that You would speak to us through Your Word and help us to come closer to You because we deal with the challenges that our sin produces. Lord, we pray that You would speak in a mighty way, in a way that helps us see the hope we have in Your gracious forgiveness and the reality we need in repentance. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The Word of God says this in Ezra chapter 9. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hands of the officials and the chief men have been foremost. That is, the people you would least expect were the ones most involved. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled my hair from my head and my beard, and I sat appalled. He was broken by this sin. And then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel... Because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, they gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord God saying, O my God, I am ashamed and I blush to lift my face to You. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted to the top of the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we've been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves... And yet, our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what have we to say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the land with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons and neither take their daughters for your sons and never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat of the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all, that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, seeing that You, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved, and have given us such a remnant of this, shall we break Your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would You not be angry with us until You consumed us, so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, You are just, For we are left a remnant that has escaped, as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, and none can stand before you because of this. Chapter 10. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men and women and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shekinah the son of Jehiel and the sons of Elam addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. And then Ezra rose, and he made the leading priests and the Levites and all of Israel take an oath that they would do as they have said. And so they took an oath. And then Ezra withdrew from the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehoinan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles." And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. And if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all of his property would be forfeited, and he himself would be banned from the congregation of the exiles. And then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days, and it was the ninth month on the twentieth day of that month, and the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increase the guilt of Israel. Now then, make a confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourselves from the people of this land and from the foreign wives. And then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so, and we must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand out in the open. No, this is not a task for one day or two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter." Let our officials stand for the whole assembly and let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times and with them the elders and judges of every city until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan the son of Asiel and Jazziah the son of Tikva opposed this. And Meshulam and Shabbatai the Levites supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. and Ezra, the priest selected men, heads of the father's households according to their father's houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. And here they are. Now, there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women. So the priest did this, and he lists several of them. And then of the Levites, verse 23, and he lists them. And then there was also of the singers, there was one. And then, verse 24, of the gatekeepers, there was three. And then of all the people of Israel, the 50,000 that returned, there was a list here that spans all the way to verse 43. And then we get to the final verse. And all these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. Okay, so Zerubbabel had led the first wave of returnees, about 50,000 faithful folks who left uh, Babylon and the beautiful Hanging Gardens, and this accomplished the physical restoration of God's people back to Israel, and they rebuilt the temple despite many obstacles. And there was an intervening 80-year period after that first group of faithful folks. 80 years have gone by. And God sends a man named Ezra, and another king says anybody can go back that wants to go back, and only 5,000, about 1,500 men and their women and children, about 5,000, so only 10% of the 50,000, which itself was a slender fraction of the millions that were in the empire who were Jewish. Ezra came back, not to rebuild the temple, but he came back to rebuild the spiritual life of the people that were faithful that came back 80 years ago. And so, when he comes back, he's going to spend four months, the Bible tells us, preaching the Word of God to this second generation of returnees. And God's Word begins to stir the people's consciences, which brings us to the first point today, which is the good. Of the good, the bad, and the ugly, here we have the good. The first thing we see that's good is A in your outlines. The Word of God never returns void. The Word of God never returns void. It always accomplishes the purpose God intends for it. The Word of God never returns void. It always accomplishes what God intends. So let me ask you a question. What happens when a man skilled in the Word of God, because that's what the Bible says of Ezra, invests four and a half months proclaiming God's Word to God's people? And here's the Bible's answer. The seed of God's Word begins to germinate in the heart of God's people and tender shoots of obedience break through the hard-packed soil of our easily calloused consciences. That that through the faithful preaching from a skillful preacher anointed by God, the Word of God begins to accomplish what God had intended and fruit starts to happen in the hearts of the people. I want you to look at verse 1 again with that in mind. And after these things had been done, now what are those things? That is, after four months of faithful preaching, the officials approached Ezra. Ezra didn't go to them. He didn't know about this sin. The people who knew the leaders, they came and said, we have a problem. And they approached Ezra and they said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the land. So for four months, Ezra saturated the saints in Scripture. And so what happens when the Word of God goes forth? Well, Isaiah 55.11 happens. Isaiah 55.11, God says, and so shall My Word that goes out from My mouth, it shall not return empty, but it shall accomplish what I purpose, and it shall succeed for the thing in which I sent it. And so four months of biblical preaching, and now God's Purposes are emerging in the hearts of his people. This faithful remnant, these are the good guys. This is the 50,000 that had the faith. The good guys. This faithful remnant has a secret, and the secret is compromise. In the 80 years from when the first exiles returned under Zerubbabel to the second return under Ezra, in that 80 year period, a very large number of the children of the families who risked everything for God's glory, well, they began to intermarry with the surrounding neighboring Pagans around them. Now, I want you to notice that when the, when the sword of the Lord was unsheathed, when four months of faithful preaching happened, the sword of the Lord surgically targeted the cancer that would otherwise kill the body. Look at verse 1 again. And after these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abomination. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. They got all involved with everybody they could find. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wise for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with peoples of the lands. And this, and in this faithfulness, the hand of the officials and their chief men have been foremost. The leaders led in the sin, not in the Savior. So so God's people were under God's Word, and now they were under God's conviction. And, And God began to reveal what they had previously tried to conceal. Which brings us to point B. For just as the Word of God never returns void, but it always accomplishes what God purposes, we see that B is true as well. The Spirit of God convicts us which is the first step in biblical repentance. The Spirit of God convicts us which is the first step in biblical repentance. In John 16, Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit saying He convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And this is exactly what we see happening to God's people in Ezra 9:3. The Bible says, as soon as I heard this, Ezra is, is, is broken. And I tore my garment and my cloak, and I pulled the hair from my head and my beard, and, and I sat appalled. Now, to tear your garment in the ancient world was a sign of deep contrition. You didn't have a whole lot of clothes. This was a costly thing. It would be like taking a sledgehammer to your new car. All right? This was expensive. It cost you something. And it was an outward sign that my inside's not right because you can see my outside is not, not right. Okay? And so uh, the Bible says he tears not only his outer garment that people see, but his inner garment that they don't. He has a deep contrition, an unusual level of contrition. He's totally broken by the revelation of the sin within. And then the Bible says that Ezra pulls his hair from his head and he pulls out his beard. And this was a very unusual way to convey the deep grief of your soul. Now I want you to notice that years later, when this very same sin will come again, Nehemiah, the new leader, he's going to pull the hair out of the guys who did it. <laughs> Ezra pulls his hair out over it, Nehemiah is going to pull the hair out of the guys who did it. You see, two God-given leaders and yet the very same sin. And there's two very different God-given responses. Ezra weeps and plucks his own beard. Nehemiah grabs the scallywag and pulls out their hair. You see, God sometimes will send us gentle leaders who are broken with us in our sin. But sometimes God will also send us strong leaders who are willing to hammer out the sin that we won't deal with. Friend, if God sends you an Ezra who comes and weeps over your sin, deal with your sin then, or God may send a Nehemiah who hammers it out of you because God wants it out of you. It raises the question. The Bible says as soon as Ezra heard this, he tore his garment and his cloak and pulled the hair from his beard and sat appalled. It raises the question, are we shaken by our sin? Do we sit appalled and bawl I fear that we as a people of God have become quite desensitized to sin. Sin no longer shocks us. In fact, very often it entertains us. There's a danger that we're approaching. Look at verse 4. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathering around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. Who came next to Ezra? All who trembled At the word of the God of Israel. Friends, apparently there are people, even in the midst of a wicked day, even when the people of God are compromising, even when the pagans are all around you, there are those who still tremble at the word of God. And there are those who don't. And so it raises another question which is true of me? Which is true of you? Which camp are you? Now, what was their sin? The Bible says that they had not separated themselves, that was their sin. They were intermarrying with the people of the land. And to modern ears, this kind of sounds a little bit racist, doesn't it? Like, wow, what's the big deal intermarrying with these other people? But I want you to understand the issue isn't race at all. Not race at all. The issue, this call to separation, was not racial, it was spiritual. Repeatedly, God had warned the Israelites not to intermarry among the Canaanites, or else God's people's hearts would be captured by the foreign gods. That they worshiped. It was a spiritual issue. Uh, There was a way, if a foreigner wanted to leave idolatry and worship God Almighty, God made provision for their inclusion in Scripture. So this wasn't a racial issue. This was a heart issue. It was that there were people that were coming into the people of God and marrying into the families who had no heart relationship with God, wanted no heart relationship with God, and it would lead people with a relationship into coldness and dullness, and cause a lot of problems. We see in Scripture that God includes foreigners who are willing to put Jesus first. Ruth and Rahab joined the people of God when they renounced their foreign gods and embraced the one true God. So there was a place for inclusion. And yet, this separation isn't a little thing. This is not an innocuous situation. It's a perilous situation. What was it that led God's people to 70 years of captivity? It was idolatry. Idolatry led the people into captivity. And God has shown great grace and with just 80 years of freedom, they were back to their old ways. And they were running with the pagans. And they were living and loving with the world. So what does Ezra do about this? Now, he doesn't know what to do about this. There was no manual on this. This isn't what they had a class on in whatever version of seminary he might have attended. So he simply prays. It's a good place to start. Okay? You know, I often tell you when I don't know what to do, the best thing to do for Christians is to cheat and ask God, right? Ask God. He gives generously to all who ask when we ask for wisdom. And so we come to point C. The earnest prayer of a humble and contrite heart God never despises. The earnest prayer of a humble and contrite heart God never, never, never despises. Look at verse 5. This is the God of the Old Testament. It's the same as the God of the New Testament. God is a gracious God, but He does require repentance. Verse 5, and at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and I fell upon my knees and I spread out my hands to the Lord, my God, saying, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and I blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens and on he goes. You know There are situations where we get ourselves in such a pickle that our sin is higher than our heads. We have just made so many bad decisions and followed those bad decisions using other bad decisions to cover that bad decision until our life looks like one giant bad decision. Sin. A mess. Now, I want you to realize that Psalm 51.17 says this. Psalm 51.17, you might want to write it in the margin of your Bible next to this passage. Psalm 51.17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. When we have messed up so royally that all we can do is come to God humbly, that's exactly the place God wants you to be is humbly before Him. Broken over your sin. He already knew you did it. Now He wants you to deal with it. James 4.8 in the New Testament says this, Draw near to God, And sin makes us want to run away from God. Satan says God doesn't want to have anything to do with you. You're unloved and you're unlovable. But Scripture says draw near to God and He will draw near to you. James 4.8 tells us to cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's our problem as Christians. We, We love Jesus, but we also love the world. And sometimes we get so full of the world that we've eclipsed Jesus and we've got to run back to Jesus to draw near to God and He will draw near to us to cleanse our hands, you sinners and purify your hearts you double minded mourn and weep humble yourselves before the lord and he will exalt you not he will dismiss you not he will hate you not he will... he died for you while we were yet sinners and enemies so he's not going god is willing for you if you're willing to deal with your issue he's willing to deal with you But you have to be willing to deal with your issue. Friends, conviction leads to contrition. Contrition ought to lead to confession. And confession always leads to cleansing according to the Bible. If we do what according to 1 John? Try again. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and He will forgive us and He will cleanse us. A good verse to remember. Written to Christians. Written to Christians. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to mess up. We're going to sin. We're not going to be perfect. Jesus is perfect. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and He will forgive us and cleanse us. Now, so far we've seen the good. The good is that the Word of God is powerful. If you sit under faithful preaching from an anointed servant, you will probably have God like a magnet draw the iniquity to the surface so that He can skim the surface and leave you with pure gold. If you superheat a pot with ore, the gold stays in the pot and the junk goes to the surface and then you skim the surface and you're left with pure gold. God's a refining fire. But I'll tell you, when He heats that pot, it's not so fun to stand next to or sit in. Amen? but it's it's effective. So far we've seen the good and now we need to shift from the good to the bad. In Ezra 9 to 10 there's plenty of bad. There just is. And I think that's why preachers don't preach Ezra. The Bible wasn't written for some fairy tale place full of perfect people who always live perfectly. That's the Sunday school answer. That's not the biblical answer. The Bible records real people, fallen people, fallen people who fail regularly and yet a God who's willing to love them relentlessly. So here's the bad. A. There are certain sins that easily entangle us. There are certain sins that easily entangle us. I want you to listen to Ezra's prayer. These particular problems were not new to the Israelites. They were the same one that God's people had fought through all through all the years before their captivity. And they were the same problems they were facing after the captivity because the sin would seep back in if the vessel doesn't have itself sealed well. And that seawater will come in fast into our ship unless we, we keep it well sealed. It'll seep right into our homes. It'll seep from the sewer to the parlor and it will disrupt your dinner when the sewer is in the parlor, isn't it? And so, oh my God, I'm ashamed and I, and I blush to lift my face to You. The prophet says, my, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens from the days of our fathers to this days we've been in great guilt. Meaning, look, we've been here before. We've done this before. You've got to be tired of us confessing this same sin again and again. And yet, that's true with God's people. And for our iniquities, our kings and our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, to utter shame as it is today. Meaning, not only have we dealt with this sin before and, and had difficulty, but you chastised us and there was a pain painful chastisement, yet here we are again. And now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving. To set up the house of our God. To repair its ruins. And to give us protection in Jerusalem and Judea. And now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken Your commandments. Which You commanded by Your servants the prophets, saying, the land which You are entering, to take possession of it. So way back when they got the land, God said, it is a land impure with the impurity of its peoples. With their abominations, they filled it from end to end with uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons and neither take their daughters for your sons and never seek their peace or their prosperity that you may be strong and eat good of the land and leave it as an inheritance for your children forever. Did you know that God knows that we struggle? Did you know God knows that? God knows that we often struggle over the same basic sins again and again in our lives. Why don't you write Hebrews 12.1 next to this passage? Hebrews 12.1 next to Ezra's prayer in chapter 9. I memorized Hebrews 12.11 in the NIV. It well captures the sentiment of the original Greek. The Bible says this in Hebrews 12.1, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. Let's hear that again. Um, Hebrews 12.1, Let us throw off everything that hinders... And the sin that so easily entangles. The sin. Singular. Now friends, I don't know about you, but in the 27 years I've walked with Jesus, there have been certain sins that seem harder to shake than others. How about you? Like you went over here, you went over here, you went over here, and you lose over here. And you kind of lose in that same arena a lot. That seems to be the one the devil goes, that's the one I'm going to keep going to. Now, my particular sin struggle is is probably not your particular sin struggle. For some of us, it's anger. For some of us, it's pride. For some of us, it's lust. For some of us, it's gossip. For some of us, it's envy. For some of us, it's whatever. You know the sin that easily entangles you, don't you? Let me tell you what, so does the devil. So does the devil. Satan knew the returning remnant were starting to get close to God. And he knew that intermarrying those far from God would drive a wedge in their pledge of faithfulness. And so Satan made sure that the returning remnant noticed that the surrounding Samaritans were fine in form and features. And their daughters were available for marriage. Which brings us to letter B. Sometimes all we can do is acknowledge our guilt, accept God's justice, and plead for God's mercy. There are situations we get ourselves in where all we can do is acknowledge our guilt, accept God's justice, and plead for God's mercy. Look at verse 13 of chapter 9. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He just puts it out there. Seeing that you are God, have punished us less than our iniquities observed. Isn't that true? <laughs> you know, God spanks but He doesn't spank me as hard as He ought to. Or I wouldn't still be standing here and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break Your commandments again and again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would You not be angry with us until You consumed us, so that there should be no remnant and no way to escape? O Lord the God of Israel, You are just. You're not wrong in punishing iniquity. I'm wrong in getting involved in iniquity. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before You in our guilt." for none can stand before you because of this. Ezra had no way to fix this. He just knew he needed to be honest to God and that somehow God would make a way. But it starts with that broken and contrite heart before God, with a willingness to confess to the Lord. And that comes to our final point today. Uh, from, From Blondie and Angel Eyes to Tuco the Bandit, if you remember the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's what they called each other. From the good to the bad. Now we get to the ugly. Now we get to the ugly. The ugly truth is this. After conviction, contrition, and repentance, God offers a solution to the people's pollution. Well, that's wonderful. But the chemotherapy is going to be hard on the patient. The cure is almost as painful as the disease. Which brings us to point A today. Sometimes our sin leaves us with only the best of the worst options. Sometimes our sin will put us in a position where we're left with nothing more than the best of the worst options. All the good options are gone. All the easy options are gone. All the the win-wins are gone, and all that's left is something hard. It's still good, it's better than bad, but it's not as good as good. And you need to understand that. Verse 2 of chapter 10. And Shekinah, the son of Jahel, the son of Eliam, addressed Ezra and says, we have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope. There is hope for Israel, for us, for God's people, in spite of our sin, in spite of this. Here's how you need to fix it. You need to fix it by fixing it. <laughs> Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children. Wow. According to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of God and let it be done according to the law. Now, it'd be really easy for Shekinah to stand here and say this if his family's not affected by this. If the other people were naughty and he was righteous, you could say, well, you people need to... But let me just show you that uh, Shekinah apparently had some skin in the game because verse 2 tells us his father is who? Jahel, Whom verse 26 tells us the very same name was one who took a pagan bride. Now, Warren Wearsby's a pastor and, and, and he in, in, in his commentary on this passage says this, in my pastoral ministry I've seen churches split and their witness almost destroyed because people have sided with their disobedient relatives in matters of discipline instead of the Lord and His Word. But this guy wasn't one of those guys. He said even though Dad's involved in this, we're going to deal with this. Now I want you to notice that Ezra the preacher didn't go around whipping people into action. Ezra just preached the Bible and God started stirring hearts until people were repentant. Ezra preached and Ezra prayed and God pricked hearts. He pricked their consciences so that they came to Ezra and said, we need to act. Now Shekinah uses some very odd words in his argumentation. The word he uses for marriage is yatshav, and it literally means to dwell. And the word for divorce is yatsah, which means to send away. And only Ezra and Nehemiah, use these words in this way. No one else in all the Bible does. Uh, There are many other much clearer terms for divorce and remarriage, but Shekinah uses these peculiar words. So some scholars believe that Shekinah is saying that these were never really biblically sanctioned marriages, that God had forbidden these types of unions, and so this was more like an annulment than anything else. It's hard to know which one of those is true. All I know is these families will be torn apart by God's will and people's obedience. That's what I know. Whether it's an annulment, whether it's a divorce, it's a disillusion of families. And that's going to happen. What is clear is that in Ezra 10, God is condoning, God is even demanding uh, some kind of disillusion of these households in this particular instance. Now right away, if you've read the Bible, you go, wait a minute, doesn't God hate divorce? Doesn't Malachi say God hates divorce? Yes, doesn't Jesus say what God has put together, let no man Separate, yes, indeed. But if we study the whole counsel of God, you're gonna see that there were cases where divorce was permissible. There might even be cases where divorce is advisable in very rare instances. Which comes first, Malachi or this passage? This passage. This comes first. Okay, so the returnees come back, they intermarry, and they don't want to get they don't want to leave these, these pretty wives they shouldn't have married. And 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 God says, No, you need to stop these. These unholy alliances. Now later, in Malachi's day, a little bit later, Malachi's going to show up and he's going to have to tell the Israelites, stop getting divorced all the time. So isn't it interesting, when God was telling them you need to put away these families, nobody wanted to do it. And later, when God said, don't put away these families when you marry the appropriate people and did the right thing, well, I don't like her anymore. I'm going to get a divorce. Like, we will fall off the horse one way or the other, won't we? We will either fall off the horse that we are too slow to obey hard truth or we are too quick to let go and try and find a loophole when there isn't a loophole. And so, what we see here is the challenge all saints have between uh, the the challenge of libertinism where we do more than God permits and the challenge of disobedience where we won't do what God asks us to submit. We drag our feet on obedience. We run ahead of God in in, uh, unwarranted license. Wouldn't it be better if we just trust and obeyed? Somebody had a song about that. Remember how that song goes? There's no other way to have your best life now. No. (laughs) There's no other way to be happy in Jesus. So it is with a stiff-necked people. Now, in the progress of Revelation, we are not Israel. And and so when you come to us, uh, all believers are urged not to be unequally yoked. So if you're thinking of dating someone and you're thinking that that will lead to marriage and they don't know Jesus, you need to stop dating them. Right? That's what Scripture says. Because what happens is we do evangelistic dating and then along the way our heart becomes in love with the person and we get married. And we know the Scriptures don't say to do that and then later when they don't want to follow Jesus and they don't want to raise the kids to follow Jesus, what happens? You cry and say, my kids don't know Jesus and my spouse doesn't want to... And that's because it wasn't God's plan. Now, as New Testament believers, if you got married and the person doesn't know Jesus, should we leave our spouse? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Paul says, look, (laughs) if you've already made this decision, or let's say one of you comes to Christ after the other one, after you get married, either way, don't leave your spouse. Try to win your spouse. Not by badgering them, but by living such a Christ-like life that they want what you have, which is Jesus. But young people, if you're making a choice, I'm going to tell you there's plenty of people fine in form and feature. There's lots of fish in the sea. But if you tether yourself to a coral reef and you're a fish, you're going to have trouble swimming with Jesus because the coral reef can't move with you to Jesus. Make sense? Swim with the fish. Swim with the fish that's headed the same way with the same intensity. You know they talk about being equally yoked and you go, well, I'm a horse and he's a horse. He he just came to Christ. Give him some time to see if that, that coming to Christ is real because some people will say anything to marry someone. Equally, just because someone is a Christian, if one horse is a Clydesdale, beautiful and ready to go, and the other one's like, stubborn, and, you know. You're not equally yoked just because you're both horses. If one of you wants to gallop for God and the other one wants to drag his heels, you're not equally yoked. You're both horses, congratulations, but you're not going to be able to walk together well. You're going to constantly be breaking each other's necks. Just think about that. If you're already in that situation, well, that's a different story. God says then you need to be such an example that you begin to encourage your spouse to think about Jesus by your Christ-like living, not by your nagging. But if you haven't made that choice, please hear it loud and clear. Because Satan loves to take people who are white hot for Jesus and anchor them to a coral and watch them not get very far. I don't want that to happen to you. Now in this case, sin had left people, God's people with only a hard choice. The need to, in this case, unusually rend the family. And it was going to be really easy to buckle under the weight of that situation, which brings us to point B. Sometimes, dealing with our sin will require all of us, the whole community, to be strong and courageous and united even when it's hard. To be strong and courageous and united, even when it's hard. Look at verse 4 of chapter 10. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. And then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and the Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as what had been said. He got the leaders together, the priests, the other leaders, the Levites, and everybody else, and they made an oath before God. We're going to deal with this. We're going to deal with this. Friends, there are those who tremble at the Word of God. And they are sometimes forced to make hard decisions. And often the right decision is not the easy decision. But we do it anyway because it honors God. Ezra got the leading priests and the leaders and all Israel to make an oath that they would do as God led them. Which brings us to point C today. Sometimes we must deal with our sin at an inopportune moment. You ever had to deal with your sin in an inopportune moment? This wasn't a good time for that, God. Can we deal with this another time? Every time God's ever had me deal with sin, it's always in an opportune moment. I don't know how it's worked out for you. Every time is an inopportune moment. Sometimes we must deal with our sin at an inopportune moment. Look at verse 6 of chapter 10. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehonathan, the son of Eliashab. And there he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. Verse 7. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. There's going to be a meeting and you have to be there. And if anyone did not come in three days, you have three days to get there because they only live so far away, by the order of the officials and the elders, all of his property will be forfeit. You're going to lose your house. You're going to lose your stuff. And he himself will be banned. You're going to have to move back away. And so everybody had to stop whatever they were doing. Now, now some of them were probably doing really important things. They were about to close an important business deal. They were about to uh, put in their crops. They were about to, there's always something, right? You know, my kid just got finally drafted for Little League and he's going to be the shortstop and he's, uh, he's batting first a little, nope. Everybody's going to stop what they're doing. Everybody's going to have to assemble. Sin did that. They're going to lose all their property or be banned from society. Sometimes dealing with our sin will will disrupt all the other things in our life and the lives of those around us. Verse 9, then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days, and it was the ninth month and the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter. And at the verse stop there, we go, oh, they're... You know, they're, they're dealing with their sin. But you know what? It wasn't just the only reason they were trembling. And because of the heavy rain. The December rains come. and you know, we lived in Africa, and the rains would come in that time of year. We'd wait all year for the rains to come. Well, the rains would come to Israel in December there, and that, that time of year. And Ezra the priest stood up and said, you have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. He's giving this sermon in the driving rain and the shivering cold. Then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the foreign wives. You wonder where the thunder would crash along there, huh? For effect. Because God's like that, right? He made it rain. Like, like, you know, when you watch the movie and the sad part of the movie comes and it's raining and you're like, that's so fake! Well, it actually happened here. The sad part of the story came and the heavens cried with God and with God's people. And it was pretty miserable to be standing in the rain dealing with your sin. It was so. We must do as you have said. And the people are many... And it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open. We're all going to get pneumonia and die. We need to deal with this, but is this the best way to deal with this? It was hardly an opportune time to stand in the open at the temple in the driving December rains. And the people who were soaked to the bone, even as their hearts were cut to the quick. And friends, let me tell you, there's never an opportune time to deal with our sin. Satan will always make it utterly inconvenient. But we still need to deal with it. Which brings us to D. Sometimes it's going to take time to deal with our sin. Sometimes it's going to take time to deal with our sin. Verse 9, Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days, and it was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. Now skip down to verse 16. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the the, the priest selected men, heads of the father's houses, according to their father's house, each of them designated by name. And on the first day of the tenth month, They sat down to examine the matter. And on the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. Okay. So ultimately, it's going to take from the 20th day of the ninth month of the Hebrew calendar to the first day of the first month of the next year before they fix this. That's a long time. How long? Okay, let's put it in our calendar. Basically, from December 29th on our calendar until March 27th is how long it took for them to have the leading officials have every household interview that married somebody in that time and to see if that person was a foreigner and to see the situation with that foreigner. From December 29 to March 27 is how long it took for the people of God to deal with this situation. Each family would be interrogated and if they had a foreign wife they would see if she was a heart convert to the God of Israel in which case no problem. But if she was really an idolater there would be a resultant dissolution and the families would be torn apart. The wife would take the children and that would be the end of the story. The point is, there are some problems that don't get fixed in one day. In one business meeting, thank God we don't have a business meeting we're expecting any of this, so don't be worried. We have a, I don't plan where these sermons are going to fall, okay? <laughs> it's Mother's Day and we're talking about divorce. I don't plan where the sermons are going to fall. <laughs> I just preach through the books, alright? So, so, the point is, there are some sins that cannot be dealt with in just one day. They just can't. Many times, the climb back from sin is a slow one, and it takes time. Now, did everyone love this outcome? This is what God led the people. Clearly, God led His people. And did everyone agree? No. Nope. Uh Uh-uh. That brings us to letter E. Sometimes dealing with our sin will divide us. Sometimes dealing with our sin will divide us. Verse 15, only Jonathan, the son of Ashiel, and Jehazah, the son of Tikva, opposed this. 55,000, that's if nobody had any babies, right? 5,000 came back this time, 50,000 last time, some people had some babies, so maybe there's 100,000, I don't know. Let's do the conservative math. Two dudes out of 55,000 don't agree. Two. Maybe out of 100,000. And then they could get two guys to agree with them. Meshulam and Shabbatiah, the Levite, supported them. Two guys didn't agree and they got two guys to side with them. Four guys out of a minimum of 55,000 were not on board with this decision. Now we don't know why they weren't on board. We don't know if they weren't on board because they didn't like the decision of the dissolution of marriages and going, well that's just too hard, that doesn't sound gracious. Maybe they were pro the issue and they didn't like the process. We don't think this is being handled correctly. We don't like the process. This is too slow. This is taking many months. We need to do it. I don't know if they were wanting it now or they wanting it not to happen at all, but it's very probable their problem was with the process. I have found, in 27 years of knowing Jesus and Jesus' people, and shepherding Jesus' people on a couple of continents and multiple states, whenever there's a contentious decision, Satan... Will stir up some who will loudly lambast the process, even if they can't argue with the outcome. Well, the process was flawed, but the outcome was clear. It had to be this way. Sin only leaves us with the best of the worst options. Now, we don't know if this dissent was over the outcome or the processes, but God wants us to know that this wasn't a 100% vote. God wants us to know that there were two strong voices who opposed and there were supporters who rallied around those voices. Friends, whenever we come to a hard decision, some folks will disagree with wherever God leads. And usually they can whip up a faction to back their course of action. And that doesn't mean we back down on where God has led. Does it? Doesn't God was guiding and God was leading and the people were fasting and the people was praying and this hard, unprecedented action that seemed uh, so unloving was biblically necessary and it was Spirit-led, but not everybody liked it and not everybody agreed with it and not everybody was going to go along with it. Brings us to letter F. All sin can be forgiven. Paul was a murderer and he became the great apostle to the Gentiles. So unless you've killed somebody, you're probably on equal footing with at least one of the apostles, right? There were people that doubted. His name was Thomas. He went around and shared the Gospel. There were people that denied multiple times when it was critical. Peter. I think the apostles were just normal failures like you and I who gave themselves to Jesus. But there's an issue in, verse, in letter F. All sin can be forgiven but it often leaves lingering consequences. And that's the part the modern church does not want to accept. We want to talk about grace, and grace is wonderful, but grace doesn't necessarily mean that every consequence doesn't befall us. If we read verses 18-44 to of chapter 10, you're going to see that 113 families are listed whose homes are utterly upended. There was no cover-up for the influential. The high priest's extended family is listed first and then the other priests, and then the Levites, and then the gatekeepers, and then you get down to the regular Israelites. Sin is an equal opportunity employer, isn't it? Yeah. Friends, these families were torn apart, and there was no way to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Do you know what? If I hammer a nail into a board that shouldn't be there, and I go get a hammer, and by grace I pull that nail out of that board, do you know what will still be in that board? A hole. The nail won't be there. The nail is gone. The grace of God's hammer took it out. But there's a hole because one time there was a nail. That's how God made the physical world. It's also how God made the spiritual world in a sense in that there are consequences. Not eternal, but sometimes temporal. If I have a terrible cut and my cut gets infected and then God in His grace gives me medical care and I cleanse that cut and I take out all that infection and that dis- all that stuff, you know what usually happens after that cut heals? There's a scar. And for the rest of my life, Jesus went to the cross He didn't deserve it. He died for us. And when He resurrected in a glorious body, He said, look at my hands and my side. There were still scars that sin put even though grace glorified and beautified and corrected. I can't imagine this scene. 135 fathers weeping, children weeping, fathers kissing their wives for the very last time hugging their little Benjamins for the very last time, never to see them again. 130 some families. But what I can say is, we need to be very careful with sin, don't we? Because even as grace brings forgiveness and cleansing, and it does, there are often still scars in those wounds that once festered. Amen? That's just a reality. That's the ugly part of the truth. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful that Your Word goes forth with power and it accomplishes all that you have intended for it to achieve. That's the good. We're grateful that that you bring us to a place where we repent of our own free will. That the people came to Ezra. Ezra didn't have to beat them up and rub their nose in it. He just had to preach the truth. And the truth set people free. And the first part of setting people free is to get them to admit they're in bondage. And they need a change of ownership. And they need the shackles to be removed. And yet, if we wear shackles long enough, uh, they can leave scars in our hands and in our wrists that when we're liberated, people can still look over and see that one day in the past we were dominated, even though now we have victory in Jesus. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, that, that we would understand the bad, that it might keep us away from the things. The, 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 the forbidden fruit that looks good to the eye and seems useful for gaining wisdom, seems attractive, seems right in the light. And Lord, I don't know what each person's sin that easily entangles is but I know according to Hebrews there is a sin right now for each of us that easily entangles and if we defeat it there's another that will take its place until we go to be with Jesus where sin will no longer have dominance where we will have a new world untainted by sin the tempter will be incarcerated unable to tempt us to sin and we will have new bodies that are incapable and incorruptible of sin but right now I'm in this body and I love the things of the Lord and yet what rages within me, as Paul writes, the Apostle Paul, that, that that which I love I don't pursue, and that which I hate I pursue, and who can rescue me from this body of death, praise be to Jesus Christ. And so may we look to Jesus. If need be, may we humble ourselves, and may, may we come to You with contrition that You might bring cleansing. And Lord, we pray that the scars would, would make us mindful to not put hot irons and hot coals in our laps, and uh, things that might break us down. At the same time, Lord, may we have hope. May we have courage. May we, may we walk together. And may we see Your Word go forth with power. And may many of the good things of Scripture, Lord, it's, it's, a, it's a seed that starts small, but then all the birds of the air find shelter. So may, may You work in our life, even where we have holes in the board where the nails once were, that You would make the board sturdy and steady, that men can walk from one side of sin to the other side of the Savior through the cross of Christ with the nails that were put in, because You so loved the world that You gave Your only begotten Son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.